What's up, guys? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. And we're here at episode number 20. We made it. 20 episodes. How you doing, Leo? I'm doing great. I'm excited. I can't wait because we're going to do something a little different than we have been doing. We're going to do a sort of movie battle. So we're going to put two movies up against each other, who, which are very similar in terms of themes and plots, and see which film is supreme. Mm. And we've chosen to do... Gone Girl, directed by David Fincher, versus Prisoners, directed by Denis Villeneuve. These are both uh, incredible crime drama mysteries with incredible filmmaking, great performances, amazing cinematography, and enthralling stories. And also, yes, they're both murder mysteries, but also very different tones and very different themes and moods to the films, too, which I think is a very important setting them apart. Yeah, Prisoners is very dark and intense, whereas Gone Girl, yeah, it's dark but also it has a lot of humor blended into it. Yeah, it has a lightness to its tone versus Prisoners is straight up dark the whole time, but we'll get into that. Mm. Um, First, I want to start off by thanking one of our fans, Jai Kaminsky from Newcastle, Australia, made us this authentic slate. It's made out of wood. He painted it himself. He made it himself. It's like a chalkboard slate. It's going to be part of the set forever now, and uh, we're going to write every episode that we're doing on it. So, Jai, thank you so much Thanks, Jai. for this we really, awesome gift. We love it. All the way from down under, mate. Hell yeah. Thanks it's, so it's much. It's fantastic. And uh, Jai uh, has an Instagram account. Uh, it's called it's at JK underscore custom underscore carpentry, located in Newcastle, Australia. I know we got a bunch of you Aussie fans down under, so check him out. Thank you, all of our fans around the world. Jai, you're the man. Fucking... Awesome gift. Thank you so much. We love it. If you like our podcast and our content, the best way you can help us is to share our podcast with, you know, your movie friends or just friends in general. Uh, share the YouTube channel, Raise the Lost Podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts. Leave us those five-star reviews. Those help a lot, specifically the written ones. I know every podcast says this, but seriously, it helps. There's no marketing team. It's just me. Leo does all the goddamn editing. Um, we, we have nobody. We have no funding. <laughs> we're getting there also uh we are launching a patreon account so you can find us on patreon raise the lost podcast i'll put a link in the bio of everything too so, so check this out that out you can support us monthly there we would love it and appreciate you guys hit the notification bell for new episodes leave a comment like everything and again spoilers are abound if you have not seen these movies I recommend watching the movies before listening to these reviews because we're going to be spoiling the shit out of them. Both of these films have very dramatic twists, so if you haven't seen it, you're going to want to probably watch it beforehand. If you have seen it, get buckled up. This is going to be a good episode, and these are great movies. Let's do it, man. So let's start with Gone Girl. Hell yeah. Directed in 2014 by David Fincher, based on the book by Gillian Flynn, who also wrote the script. And we haven't read the book. I know it's a phenomenal book, but... We're not going to talk about anything, any differences between the book and the movie. This is just an analysis analysis of the movie only. And this is one of those movies where where it starts as a book and, be, and it takes over media by storm. Kind of like the dragon tattoo. It happened with Twilight, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, where this unique, interesting story, just word of mouth became a sensation for its novel. And so when the film was in production, I was very curious about it, especially since Fincher signed on. So... I was like, there's this amazing story that people are going crazy about, and we got one of the best directors ever making it, so it's going to have to be fantastic. Yeah, and it had a great trailer to go along with it. Mm. And so Gone Girl is about a man whose wife mysteriously disappears, but all clues start to point to him as the potential murder suspect. And I want to talk first about, you know, what makes Fincher such a great director? You know, to me, Fincher's basically like a surgical technician. He's so precise, so skilled at his craft. He has a very unique editing style, which we'll talk about more. Um, amazing pacing in his films. And his movies, you know, even if you've seen them a dozen times, you can't stop watching them as soon as you put it on. Yeah, and with Fincher, I think his number one asset is his control over the media, over the medium. Um, it seems as though he, he, he knows so much about filmmaking where he's probably more he's probably more of an expert than everyone else on set. So he has this attraction to the dark side of humanity and he portrays it in a, always portrays it in a fascinating way. Yeah. I think he's fascinated by just the perverseness of, of human beings in general mm-hmm. in our flaws yeah. and the things that human beings actually can do. The things we don't want to admit about ourselves. Yeah. And uh, he's a great director. He has awesome editing techniques. There's this technique he does when he films that people may not know. Um, oftentimes when there's two characters on screen together, he'll have them separated by some space so that, 
he shoots so many takes of it that he can cut one frame out, one part of the frame out, and put another part of another take into it. So he'll he'll cut a frame in half and use reactions and takes from different filming takes and put them together to make it seem like it's one take in general. Make it seamless. Yeah. So he'll he'll often separate his characters, not always, but when they're when when the characters are separated on screen together, you can bet your ass that Fincher has used the actual footage from a different take, and just blend, blended two shots into one. And he even, if he knows a, t- a take sucks, he just deletes it right there on the spot. There's a story of Jake Gyllenhaal and Zodiac where he do, he would do a take and he felt like it was really good, and then he'd go over to Fincher and Fincher would delete it. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be like, oh shit. He knows what he wants. He's a, he's an, he's a highly efficient director too. Mm. And on, on Gone Girl, he shot an incredible 500 hours of material over a 100-day shoot. Like that's an average. That's an average of five hours per day, which is absurd. If you've ever ever been on a set or know how filmmaking works, he's one of the early purveyors of digital filmmaking. He started doing digital with Zodiac when the cameras are still just HD. They weren't even 4K or 6K or 10K like they are now. So he he believed in digital filmmaking because he could he could shoot a lot more footage, get more coverage, and see it right away. Rather than waiting for the next day for the dailies, wondering what the footage would actually look like. And because he's constantly running cameras, he gets to shoot. Like, yes, he does a lot of takes. And people always talk about that. But when you're not changing the film out of the camera, you're saving a lot of time. Because that is a long process, being able to properly put the film in, take it out. It takes some time on set. So he's able to just keep running take after take after take. And there's a problem with uh, Robert Downey Jr. on Zodiac where he said that he was freaking out because he need, he was used to all of his life get, getting that like 30 to 40 minutes of them changing the film to be able to like smoke a cigarette and take his time and relax and get used get ready for the next take and then since he was shooting digital they, they had to keep doing take after take after take without breaks and Downey hated it and he became rebellious and he ended up peeing in, in mason jars and leaving it out on the set as a, <laughs> as a way of rebelling <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, DaVinci's style is, is grueling on set, I'm sure. He's a, he's a very creative and, and knows what he wants as a director, but you hear stories of, like, 50 takes of just one shot. Yeah. And also, Fincher is a master at hiding special effects in plain sight. And yeah. this film, although if you watch it, you don't notice it, is full of green screen backgrounds. Like, whenever there's someone inside of a house and they're in an interior and there's windows and you can see what's happening outside... That outdoors is often green screen. A mm-hmm. lot of if you see an open door and open window, that's green screen behind there. Yeah. So he he's a master at this. He does this in a lot of movies too, which you wouldn't expect, but he just he does it so effectively. And digitally shooting digitally helps him a lot with it. Let's get into Gone Girl, and this is an ultimate story of revenge. It's very artistically filmed, and it's thrilling. Mm-hmm. And the my favorite part about it is that there's multiple storylines that Fincher. And Gillian Flynn perfectly intertwine into like this mind-bending mystery full of twists and plot holes and shocks. And you don't know what's real or what's not. And the first half of the film, you're suspicious of Nick Dunn for mm. killing his wife. Half of you thinks he's innocent, but half of you thinks maybe he did it. And I think this is a career-best performance from Ben Affleck. And, you know, Ben's made a lot of bad movies. You know, the early 2000s, this guy kind of almost became a laughing stock in terms of his acting prowess and what movies he was taking. Mm. And I think his acting chops get a lot of criticism criticism because of that, but I think he absolutely killed this performance, and it's my favorite performance Ben's ever done. Well, I I agree with you, and I think that the reason for that is this character, Nick Dunn, is very similar to Ben Affleck in real life because one of the main themes of this movie is uh, media attention and cancel culture because the media in this film turn the the audience and the world against Nick Dunn. They misrepresent him, create aspects of his life that are untrue in order to turn people against him. And the same thing happened to Ben Affleck where the media portrayed Ben Affleck in a certain way. He was dating J-Lo for a while. As we've learned over the last decade, he's a very intelligent guy. He's a very talented guy. So he was falsely portrayed by the media for so long. So he he is a parallel to this character of Nick Dunn who's also falsely portrayed by the media. Yeah, I mean, if you ask anyone in, like, 2006 what they thought of Ben Affleck, they'd be like, oh, he's just, like, a good-looking guy. He's a meathead. He doesn't seem very smart. But, again, the last 10 years, the comeback this guy has had, directing and filmmaking and acting-wise, is insane. And he's always been like that. I'm sure he's, you know, he he fell victim to that 
he's the new Hollywood like a he's like the it guy and he was in all these bad movies like Pearl Harbor but like he was getting paid and he was famous so you know I'm sure he he fell into that lifestyle and, and didn't hate it but again when it comes to casting roles David Fincher he'll typically go on the internet and just look through photos of actors to help him find the right person and people for roles and like you said with Ben Affleck's past in the media he was looking through photos of Ben Affleck and those those photos of his forced smile at media events despite them hating him and the way they portray him and he just puts on this show for them because he has to he said that like as soon as he saw that he's like this is exactly what I see as Nick Dunn and that's a perfect character trait for the film itself because after Amy's been missing for a few days and they have that big press conference and the the journalist asks him to pose in front in, to pose next to the photo of Amy for publicity, and he's sit, he's standing there for a moment, very solemn, letting his picture get to- taken. And then someone in the crowd just says, "Smile." And Nick, being Nick, he's a uh, someone who, he's a people pleaser. Um, his mother raised him to be polite and to be nice, and so he has this instinct where someone said, "Smile," so he flashes a smile. He goes like, but then he drops it immediately, knowing that it was a mistake. And that's a perfect example of just a single tiny moment is used by the media to portray this false narrative and of then, who the person is. And then you see the parents of Amy Dunn, and they look there, and they just look like corpses being still because they know how to play the media. Yeah, exactly. These, these, the parents are experts of the media because of their history, I think 20 or 25 years of working with the media for their book. Just a little more backstory on Nick. We see multiple sides of the main characters in this film. And we eventually learn that we don't know what was real, what is real, in terms of statements of the past. Nick Dunn seems to be a highly charming and intelligent guy, but the loss of his job leads him down a path of depression and apathy towards life, the world, and eventually his wife, which leads to the deterioration of their relationship. There's this interesting contrast between what we think of Nick Dunn in the first act. We don't think he killed his wife. We're on his side in the beginning. He's a nice guy, but he kind of seems oblivious to things. He seems unaware of his own behavior at times, especially when cameras are on him. So he has these lapses in judgment of how to behave in front of other people. It actually showed up in his marriage where he just became oblivious to his marriage. He became selfish. He used his wife. He took advantage of her. And we learned that ultimately he kind of fueled the fire for what ends up happening to him in the film. And he, and he becomes responsible for what Amy becomes. Exactly. We'll talk that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, so Amy Dunn, the other lead character, Amazing Amy, who goes missing, played by Rosamund Pike. And this is one of my favorite performances of her. She's so good in this. And um, for the first half of the film, Amy seems like the greatest girlfriend ever or the greatest wife anyone could ever want. She's smart, eloquent, beautiful, wealthy, confident, America's sweetheart. She's semi-famous. Well, at least the, the character her parents, based on her, is famous. And um, she's been competing with this character, Amazing Amy, her whole life. When, she's been living in the shadow of this yeah. character. Amazing Amy is a childhood book series that her parents created. But you can tell Amy has resentment towards not only her parents for how they used her to create her fortune, but also towards this fictional character whom she says they didn't base on her childhood. They improved on her childhood with this character. And Amy states that Amazing Amy is always one step ahead of her. Amy has no siblings, so... She's been competing with the impossible standards of this perfect fictional character. Yeah, for example, when Amy wanted a dog in real life, she wasn't allowed one, but then Amazing Amy got a dog. And then when Amy started playing uh, violin, she was okay at it, but then Amazing Amy became a musical prodigy. Yeah, and despite Amy in real life and her academic achievements, like going to Harvard and everything, she still doesn't compare at all to Amazing Amy and one can only imagine the mind fuck that that has on a person throughout their entire life, which clearly shows me her unstable ability to go to the lengths that she goes to, spoiler alert, frame her husband for murder. Mm-hmm. So one of the main themes of this film is the development and destruction of relationships. So, for example, when you start dating someone, when you, you're in the courtship phase— you're kind of putting on a performance. You're 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 being the best version of yourself, and also you're trying to be a version of yourself that you think the other person will like best. So it's I mean I'm not saying that we lie when we date someone, but we're we're putting our best foot forward. You know what I mean? Because we want to attract this person. We want the courtship to be successful. So we kind of put on a bit of an act to to attract other people. And then with this film, 
this is a representation of the fact that Amy always puts on an act. We don't, she doesn't really reveal who she truly is because inside she's a very unsettled person. She's sociopathic and she's a bit deranged. But we have no idea about this at first, especially Nick, because Nick thinks she's this amazing person. She's everything that he wants in a, in a woman. Um, but the reason for that is during the entire courtship phase, Amy pretended to be what she thought Nick wanted to be. So the cool girl is the theme of Amy's life is she's always trying to be the cool girl for whatever guy she dates. She, she latches onto a man and then based on his interests and what he wants in a partner, she becomes that partner. So for Nick, it was being able to, to watch reality TV or football and drinking beer, but also st still being hot and being the, the, cool, the cool girlfriend. And so she's always pretended to be a version of herself that other people want. Yeah, the cool, cool girl speech is, is amazing. And it's this idea and this theme of like a misogynistic culture that changes a woman or, or femininity. And um, the cool girl is the concept that women change things like their habits, personality, and appearance to win the approval of a man. And in this film, Amy seems to be a very bright woman with no ceiling, um, but she gets turned into cool, cool girl, like you said, which she says at first she was game for, you know, drinking cans of beer, watching Adam Sandler movies, but eventually cool girl Amy, she gets turned into boring housewife Amy, which is a cliche caused by obviously the misogyny of men and controlling husbands. And he drains her of her trust fund, her ambition, her identity. And so this, this film is kind of a reversal of that misogyny and has, and Amy Dunn's had enough and she wants to be in control now. And the reason why she t goes to this extent and these lengths to become these different personas based on who she date, she's dating is because she never had an identity growing up. Her identity was taken from her by her parents and was put into these, this book series so she didn't have a, an identity at all. So she always created a new identity based on who she was dating. Exactly. And that's, that's apparent with uh, when she was dating Dizzy, yeah. the stalker. Desi. Ex, uh, Desi, the ex-boyfriend stalker. Who's uh, played by Neil Patrick Harris. Awesome in this movie. Yeah. NPH is the man. Yeah. And the storyline of this film is so interesting. The first hour is a cross-cutting of the present timeline with Amy missing and Nick the, being in, investigated. Yeah. Cross-cut with the past timeline of Amy's diary. And as the first-time audience member, you take her diary's account as factual information because it seems believable, it seems real, because some of it actually is. Yeah. And, of course, the husband killed the perfect wife. We've seen that a million times, and, you know, it's so common. Mm. And it's not until we find out the true nefarious plot that Fincher and Flynn pivot in the film becomes two present-day storylines cross-cutting, which eventually becomes one storyline. Yeah, when we find out... The way we find out that Amy is still alive is... Near the end of the first half of the film, Nick is going on the scavenger hunt and he's discovering that slowly but surely, Amy set him up, she planted evidence, and she put the, the police on a, a scavenger hunt leading clues to him, to her own murder. And it's actually a brilliant plan. Let's talk about the plan right now real quick. So Amy's plan is brilliant and completely foolproof because she spent so long work, working it out and she committed to it for like a year, I think by writing in the diary. But the way she sets Nick up is with this mountain of evidence against him. So first of all, everything, every asset they own is under Amy's name. She asked, she had Nick take out life insurance under her name, which would give him motive. So if she dies, he gets all of her money and then some based on the insurance plan. She racked up $117,000 worth of credit card debt from his credit card. She, she plants all the clues for the police to track down and slowly understand that Nick is probably responsible for this. She leaves the diary for the police, portraying this false narrative of the last year of their marriage and how it dissolved, saying that Nick is aggressive, Nick cheats on her, which he does, Nick is uh, abusive, and that she's fearful of her own life, which isn't true. She befriends that neighbor, that village idiot she calls her, in order to portray, in order to give, um, corroborated evidence that Nick is a distant husband who doesn't know anything about her anymore. And then she also fakes a pregnancy in order to give more motive to the fact that since Nick didn't want kids, he killed. He could have killed her because of that reason. And also the setup at the house with 
the the perfectly placed blood spots mm. and yeah. then the, the messy fake cleanup and also the staged break-in and staged struggle in the living room which, which the, she knew that the police would know was staged yeah so the thing with amy in this this perfect crime is the most important part of a murder investigation is you need a dead body otherwise it's almost impossible to prove murder but she found a way to prove that it was murder without a body with all the evidence she left behind and then the diary being the most important piece of evidence because she ends the diary with the line that says this man may kill me which obviously points to all the other evidence once you put it all together you don't need a body to prove murder anymore mm-hmm. and to the audience Again, you still kind of like are on the tiptoes up until you find out what's going on. Is Nick innocent? Did he commit the murder? Because Nick's behavior is odd and suspicious throughout the first act of the film. And we slowly learn through his sister that he's just he just behaves weirdly in situations. Yeah. And although even we we were with him when he discovers the crime scene, his immediate reaction is isn't as dramatic as you expect. He's kind of like looking at it like, what happened here? He doesn't seem too worried. And then you obviously, they cut to the Navy and you hear him screaming Amy's name. Um, at the police station, he jokingly says, I feel like I'm in an episode of Law and Order, which is a very odd uh, approach to an interrogation mm-hmm. conversation about a, your missing wife. Um, so during this interrogation, he looks even more suspicious. Nick even, like you said, smiles for the portrait next to the poster of his mi- missing wife. Then, like you said, he takes the selfie with the woman, and then Nick starts to hide evidence that he discovers from the detectives. So you kind of don't know what's going on, really. And then also, there's this amazing cut. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie where Amy's diary is telling that story about the proposal where she's at the the big launch of the book. I love this cut, too. And Nick is with her, and Nick's interrogating, like pretending to be a journalist, and that's where he proposes to Amy at the table. And she, the scene ends with her accepting the proposal with a kiss. And then there's immediate cut to the saliva swab in Nick's mouth at the police station, which is supposed to eliminate him as a suspect, which is an amazing double cut. Like, it's an amazing cut metaphor. It's the best cut of the movie. It's just an amazing metaphor cut. It's so cool. So his obliviousness to his actions leads to his own suspicion. Exactly. And the fact that he doesn't get a lawyer... And he's just making mistake after mistake after mistake. And I love the way you find out what's going on is there's this long cut to black after he opens the woodshed and sees all the all the appliances and all the toys and stuff in there. And it's like a five-second black shot. And then you all of a sudden you hear like the rising guitars and you hear Amy's voice. I'm so much happier now that I'm dead. And it's just an amazing ex- explanation compilation montage with those rising guitar chords because Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross work with Fincher a lot. They really did an amazing job with this movie's music to capture the emotion and the feel because you don't the, the the music is very light like the movie until he opens that woodshed and then it starts to get like very dark ominous tones in the music and like what the fuck's going on and then this is where it gets real serious. Then we finally see the real Amy for the first time. She we see that yes she's intelligent but she's also messed up. It's one thing to hate your husband but it's another thing to frame him for your own murder. But then. What happens is Amy's perfect plan slowly unravels because of her own actions. She interacts with that young couple, which ultimately leads to her being robbed by them, which forced her to change her plan. Where she then expertly escapes from her plan yeah. and then is able to uh, concoct a new backup plan to get back to Dunn to make sure to make it seem like he didn't kill her and she's just been kidnapped and missing the whole time. Yeah, but well, also during this, Nick is finally... Playing the, playing the media, and he learns that the only way to fight back is to fight within the media and use the media to his own advantage. Yeah, when he hires Tanner Bolt, played by Tyler Perry, and he's so good in this movie. He's great. perfect in this movie, uh, offers a great source of comic relief and intelligence, and I love Tyler Perry. I mean, you can say what you want about his movies, if you like him or not, all of the Medea stuff, um, but the guy has built an amazing career from nothing in an empire and you can't help but respect his his filmmaking his production and the success this guy's achieved and he's he's really great in this movie he actually didn't even know who david fincher was when he was cast that's insane yeah (laughs) (laughs) he's just in his own world of making movies so i don't don't blame him yeah amy develops this new plan and the new plan is to go back to desi her her childhood stalker and then use him as a way for Finding a place of safety for the moment. And then right away, we know that she's manipulating him. We can tell that he's still obsessed with her. She goes and stays at uh, Desi's 
lake house. And while there, they watch Nick Dunn's interview on national television. Nick finally understands who Amy is, and he's understanding how to fight back and to use her own methods against her. He says all the right things in this interview, owning up to the fact that he was a bad husband, he was neglectful, um, he cheated on her, he did a lot of things wrong. So just like Amy wasn't being honest, Nick wasn't being honest either in the marriage. Obviously, he's not a sociopathic killer, but he was still being an awful husband, and he caused the, the marriage to fall apart. And so seeing Nick admit all of this on national television, it, it makes Amy want him again and want to go back to him because she feels as though this is the guy that I fell in love with five years ago. While this is happening, Nick also interacts with one of Amy's ex-boyfriends who's played by Scoop McNary. I can't remember his name. But we learn that these two started dating and then Amy became ex extremely intense and controlling. And Scoop McNary decided to not just break up with her, but to get some distance between her and to back away from the relationship. And this caused Amy to frame him for raping her. And it caused him to, he got arrested for it and he didn't face jail time, but he ended up having to register as a sex offender and it ruined his life. So we understand right now the depths to which Amy will go to get revenge on the men that reject her. Yeah. And then we show she shows, and then we go to what she does to Neil Patrick Harris' character, Desi, where she plans this crazy freaking murder. And like I said, uh, framing your husband for murder is one thing. Framing a guy for rape is one thing. But to actually slit a guy's throat while he's orgasming inside of you is absolutely batshit crazy. It's one of the most shocking scenes I've ever seen in a movie the first time I saw it. She is a ruthless but intelligent killer deep down. Yeah, and then this leads to her pretending like she's been kidnapped the whole time and driving the car back to Nick Dunn, and Nick Dunn hears the noise outside and all the reporters are out there, and she falls into his arms and she puts on this amazing axe, and he goes, you fucking bitch, you fucking bitch. It's so fucking funny. It's fantastic. It's What a great moment. And, and I want to talk about why would Amy marry a man she considers beneath her. Because later on, we hear the line that she says, the only time that you liked yourself was when you were trying to be with someone this blank C-bomb might like. I don't, I'm not going to say the word. Showing that she knows Nick is beneath her, socially and intellectually. And is it because Amy could never find life as perfect as a amazing Amy? So she settles for someone below her on purpose to finally feel superior to somebody, which is also maybe why she doesn't want a relationship with Desi because Desi maybe is at a similar level to her intellectually and, and socially and financially. And to me, she chooses Nick and marries Nick because she can control him. He's beneath her. She's superior for the first time in her life. I think that's true, and especially after she comes back to him because now she's not ha she doesn't have to put on an act anymore. Now she can be her true self. And she kind of has a, a, a iron grip on him in his life. And so she finally, for the first time in her life, has control. And so I think she was, when she was with Desi, she began to understand that he's a guy who wants to control her. But with Nick, she'll be able to control him and dominate him. What happens after this is the third act of the film, which takes, it's like this movie is three different movies. And then the third act is Nick finally understands who Amy is. And Amy is finally being herself for the first time to Nick. And then she has control over Nick with the pregnancy. Yeah. And the fact that if he ever leaves her, she'll destroy him. Because what would the media treat Nick like? Or what would people treat Nick like if his wife, who had been kidnapped and held captive for days, comes back to her and then he ends the relationship and divorces her? What would they do to him then? Mm -hmm. So he's bound to her in this fucked up sort of childhood murder trap. And there's this great new change in the shift of the court of public opinion about Nick, whereas the media, journalists, and the public hated Nick, thought he was a killer, thought he was a liar, and then now they all love him. And uh, like when they come back from the hospital, they're like, we love you guys, and they're, they're being super nice to Amy and Nick. And, um, even, and even when Nick gets out of the car... And the, the crowd of journalists are being super noisy. He's like, quiet down. And they all quiet down because they're just, they're so happy. So now it's this contrast where before they hated him and now they love him because the narrative has changed. Classic media. All they need is the right narrative. <laughs> but um, this transformation of Amy Dunn from being the 
the neglected wife and the cool girl and not being to being able to be herself in her marriage and then turning into her real self at the end of the film and being who she wants to be and now she's in control is perfectly shown with the very first shot of the film and the very last shot of the film which is the close-up shot of Amy's Dunn while she's resting on her husband's chest looking up into camera. So it's a perfect bookend because I think for me in the first shot she glances up at Nick and she kind of glares at him because she's not she's living this marriage where she isn't herself. She still doesn't have an identity. And then in the final shot of the film, she glances up at him in the same way, but she she gives a nice soft smile. So for the first time in her life, she's happy because she's finally herself. Nick finally knows who she is. She no longer has to put on this fake charade of being the, the cool girl, of being the perfect housewife. She's finally the real Amy. There's no amazing Amy. There's no cool girl Amy. It's just Amy. So she's finally at peace in her life. So I think that's why she smiles at the end. So this is just a really phenomenal movie. Um, unlike Fincher's other movies, which are very dark and often like like Seven, Fight Club, even Zodiac's very dark. This is a, a like a lighter tone. Even there's a there's a lot of daylight in this film compared to a lot of Fincher's other movies. Mm-hmm. Even even Social Network's a very dark movie. There's a lot of dark scenes. So it's very light and it's fun to see a different kind of filmmaking look to Fincher's films. Also, some other fun facts about this movie. If you watch it, Ben Affleck's weight fluctuates throughout this film because while filming this, he got cast as Batman, and he was obviously going through tra- intense training for to be Batman. So there's some scenes where his body fat percentage is definitely lower than other shots. Yeah, I think there's a, a scene halfway through where he's talking to his sister, and then he just looks absolutely shredded. Yeah. And then the first whole first hour of the film, he's a little chubby. Yeah. And then like he, there's a scene with him with the St. Louis Cardinals shirt on, and he's just jacked and ripped. And but obviously in the beginning of the movie, he's like wearing those those button ups, and he's kind of yeah, like you said, a little, little chubs going on. <laughs> Not that Ben Affleck doesn't look great chubby, but like. It's it's just kind of a fun thing to, to check out. Yeah, yeah. And then um, Ben Affleck also shut production down for four days because he refused to wear a Yankees hat, but they eventually settled for a Mets hat. I, we've talked about that in another episode. It's just a really funny tidbit. It's a great story. We done with Gone Girl? Done. Let's move on to the second film of this episode, Prisoners, directed in 2013 by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, this film is about a father's daughter and her friend go missing, and he takes matters into his own hands as the police pursue multiple leads and the pressure mounts on the time frame of their disappearance. This is an incredible film, underrated when it came out. Fantastic performances by an all-star cast. Very dark themes, very dramatic stakes. So well made by Villeneuve. He's one of my favorite directors. And his collaborations with Roger Deakins began with this film. And it's so expertly shot by Deakins. I think it's one of his best films as well. It, it shows the true nature of people. When people are pushed to their limits and they're put to the edge within a life or death situation, how would you, how would you react? And this film portrays how different kinds of people react in those situations. Yeah. Roger Deakins... You already brought him up because he's the best. He's he's a freaking rock star, man. And um, he's probably my favorite cinematographer. He's up there. And this movie is so well shot. He even makes filming outside of cars looking in look interesting. And the, the film is very desaturated. It's always cloudy. It's always raining. But aesthetically, it's a beautifully shot film. It seems so complex, but it's he always goes with the simplest idea. And... He translates the themes of his films that he's working on visually into into images, and I don't think anyone's ever been as good as him at it. And one of the main themes of this film is being a prisoner. So I think every character in this film is a prisoner to something in their lives. So, for example, I would say Hugh Jackman is a prisoner to his own ways of obsessing over being prepared, obsessing over impending dan- danger he's also a prisoner to his rage yeah he, he his anger controls him and his desperation yeah and then also at the end of the film he ends up trapped in a pit and he's a, he ends up becoming a prisoner and then also detective loki jake gyllenhaal's character i feel as though he's a prisoner to his job he he lets his work consume him dominate his life 
which is why whenever he fails, he lashes out and falls into despair and loses control. And then Holly is a prisoner to the death of her son, which happened decades earlier, and which is the is which is what fuels her as a character, which we'll get into later. Yeah, Alex Jones becomes a prisoner to Keller and is also a prisoner his entire life. We find out Grace becomes a prisoner to medication. She's always like basically tranquilizing herself to sleep. And Nancy and Franklin, the other parents, become prisoners to their sin. And yes, pr- being a prisoner is a main theme of this film. And since the film's main theme is being a prisoner, Roger Deakins uses his cinematography to show that in visual ways. So in this film, he often shoots characters through windows, through glass. So his characters are always boxed in. They're always boxed in by the frame of a window, of a glass panel. And so you can really see the claustrophobic nature of the tone of the movie translated into images. And this is a very dark, intense movie. Like we said, Gone Girl also is a dark movie, but very light in tone. There's a lot of comedic elements to it, and it's storytelling, a lot of sunlight and daylight as well. But once the kids go missing in prisoners, there isn't a single ounce of joy or humor in this film. And Denis does a great job making you feel that, that suspense and dread throughout the entire film. And one of the ways that one of the things that makes him such a great director is is often inducing visuals with an acute attention to detail, building very strong characters and unique characters. And through his editing, Denis complicates your experience while you watch the film, and he takes you from being like a passive viewer or spectator, and he kind of puts you into the story yourself and puts you into the ring. Of the characters. Yeah, what the knee is, he doesn't use that many shots or setups. Lots of times his scenes are filmed with very wide shots. For example, in the houses, you feel like you understand the setting. You feel like you're in a house. It's not a bunch of close-ups, cross-cutting. When there's a conversation, it's usually one setup. Um, So he really brings you into the scene by using less camera setups, which is what he's done for all of his films. Let's get into the characters. Yeah, let's do it. Starting off with Keller Dover, played by Hugh Jackman. And this is a completely heartbreaking performance from Hugh. And Keller seems like a very good father who cares about his children more than he cares about himself. He's a handyman, hopes for the best, prepares for the worst. Is kind of like a theme or like a motto of his. His basement is fully stacked with and organized, like basically to prepare for an apocalypse. Any kind of problem, he's yeah. ready for it. But despite his compulsive behavior of being prepared for disasters, he's completely lost and doesn't know what to do when his daughter goes missing. And he battles his desires to take matters into his own hands on finding his daughter instead of letting the cops do their jobs. And he'll do anything to find her. But again, he's so prepared, that, but he doesn't know what to do now. He's a portrayal of being the ultimate protector of a family. And so when he's unable to protect his own daughter, he falls apart. He allows his brutal nature to take over. And he's fueled by rage and anger for the rest of the film. He becomes obsessed, believing that Alex is the one who took his daughter. And the audience is kind of unsure still. Because what we learn about Alex is that he's mentally handicapped. And he doesn't really understand most of what's going on in a situation. But Keller is dead set on the fact that Alex is the guy. And he will do, he'll stop at nothing to, to get the information out of Alex. And so this leads him on the path of eventually capturing Alex and torturing him for the information of the whereabouts of his daughter. But then, the whole the whole film, Keller seems so certain about this fact, but the audience, we still aren't very sure about, is Alex the guy? And so, we start to question the nature of Keller of, yes, he's doing this to protect his daughter and to find his daughter, but is he even right? But he is so blinded by his own absolution, where he doesn't, he, he won't stop at nothing until he gets whatever information he can out of Alex. This whole theme is a metaphor is used as a metaphor in the beginning of the film and usually a kidnapping movie generally opens up with safety, you know, you see a happy family, normal life. This movie gets there eventually before the kids go missing, but not without a little bit more of a haunting and metaphorical beginning. Yeah. Instead, this film opens up um in snowy woods in the middle of a forest with hunting and the killing of a deer along with a prayer. And then we see Keller and his son who made the shot. And then on the drive home with the deer in the back of the truck after hunting, Keller gives this opening monologue to his son. 
and he's talking about how to be prepared for disaster. Grocery stores, they get empty, and people just turn on each other. And turning on each other is a foreshadow of what happens between the characters of the film. Throughout the movie, Keller turns on his friends, turns on his families, turns on his moral code, turns on the police, and he, and he turns on his face. So basically, this whole movie is a bunch of characters turning on each other. And what happens to people when they start losing their morality and start losing their humanity and the depths and actions that Keller will take to get what he wants and get what he needs out of Alex Jones. Exactly. And ultimately, the irony is he was prepared for disasters, but he wasn't prepared for something like this. And no one could prepare for something like this. Let's move on to Detective Loki, if that's cool with you. Absolutely. Played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Loki, to me, is a noble character, but you can tell he has a dark past. He's solved every case he's ever been on. Seems very intelligent, but also very lonely. Loki has no friends or family that we know of. His, Like you said, his job is his life. He puts everything into it. And it seems like throwing himself completely into his profession over the years has made him very anxious and depressed. You know, the things he has seen he can't unsee, which leads to a lot of interesting character traits that Loki has and shows me that the years of trauma that he's experienced on the job has caused him to have this unique personality. Detective Loki is one of Jake Gyllenhaal's most fascinating characters, and he's incredible in this film. And Loki is so interesting. Is What's so interesting about him is he doesn't look like a cop. He's got tattoos on his neck and on his fingers. He's got a very... Uh, a very youthful haircut with the, the the short on the sides and real long on the top. I don't know what it's called. Undercut. He's got an undercut haircut. He kind of looks like a criminal, you know what I mean? Very much so, actually. He looks like he served time in prison. But the thing is, when you look at him and you know that he's a cop, there's two things you can think about is maybe he had a criminal past when he was younger, but also maybe he served time as an undercover detective. He Maybe he was working within gangs or in other criminals for a while, so that's why he has all the tattoos. And also, there's another character trait that I love, which is he has a, a gold Freemason ring on his... He always wears it in every scene. And um, it's a really interesting character trait that this this character is part of the Freemason society. There's this th- belief that Jake Gyllenhaal represents God, the Father of Christ, and Keller represents Jesus. Because Keller is a carpenter, and Loki is a Freemason. And towards the end, Loki saves the carpenter who is resurrected from within a cave. He saves Keller from the pit. There's these great themes of who these characters can represent within the bigger picture of the world. Yeah, I think Jake's performance as Loki is the most interesting part of the film. On paper, I'm sure he looked at the character. If you read the script, Loki doesn't seem that interesting of a character. It's a typical, you know... No, yeah, you're right. Stubborn, hard-nosed, obsessive detective, has no life outside of the job. We've seen that a thousand times in movies and TV shows. But Jake, but Jake created this phenomenally unique character again with the with the haircut, the tattoos, um, relatable mannerisms. He has this this odd blink twitch that he has, and it's just it brings much more characterization to to the realness of him of and, Loki. And he, yes, he's a great detective, but he also clashes with his colleagues. Him and his captain, they're constantly insulting each other, and they don't respect each other. But his captain, even though. Loki is an asshole, and he's and he's uh, he's hot tempered, and he's hard to work with. He understands that Loki is the best detective he has. Gets results. Gets results. So Although, he just, they put up with each other. Sometimes he is morally corrupt. Yeah. In terms of like pulling the gun on suspects that don't need a gun pulled on them. Yeah. And stuff like that. And yeah. also he he's abusive to Alex in in the interrogation, the first interrogation. He's he's terrifying and terrorizes Alex, knowing that Alex has the mental capacity of a ten year old. And Alex Jones, played by the highly underrated Paul Dano, is the prime suspect of the murder and the obsessive suspect of Keller. Mm. And uh, Alex Jones, on the surface, fits the bill of a kidnapper of children aesthetically. He just looks like, but he also just has that look that he knows what happened. He knows something. It's in his eyes. And Paul Dano does an amazing job showing that behind his eyes, there's something there that Keller's trying to get out. And that's what leads to Keller's obsessive with him. And that's the thing is like, he looks like someone who would kidnap kids. He has the appearance. He has an RV. He's very strange. But then through Loki's exposition to us and to Keller, we learn that Alex is mentally handicapped and he has the IQ of a 10-year-old. So there's no way that a person with the IQ of a 10-year-old could ever possibly 
come up with the plan to kidnap two kids in broad daylight and make them disappear. It's impossible. You learn who Alex Jones really is and that he was the first victim of the kidnapping couple. And so the kidnapping couple is the character Holly played by Melissa Leo. And we learn that her and her husband over the past few decades kidnapped and killed children. And so when you learn that, again, you find out early on Alex Jones has an IQ of a 10-year-old and that he's mentally handicapped, but then you learn who he was and he doesn't he wasn't born with a mental handicap. He has the IQ of a 10-year-old because he was taken as a child and was never developed as a human being. He was never educated, probably never really left the house. So he should be a normal functioning human being adult, but because of his neglect and what he's gone through his entire life, he has no education. He has no real life experience. So he has the intellect of a 10-year-old. And also when, when these kids were kidnapped by this couple, they were drugged for long periods of times so on LSD and other cocktails. So that adds to the reason why he was mentally, um, why, his, why his brain was, was never developed. And there are a ton of like fun, um, unrelated metaphors yeah. or, uh, or like uh, Easter egg kind of things of Alex Jones with Paul Dano being the Riddler in the new Batman series <laughs> because I was, we were watching it and I'm like, he's singing the Batman smells, Robin, Robin laid an egg. egg song. I'm like, he's the Riddler. <laughs> and then later on in the film, Keller goes to Alex Jones. He's like, no more riddles. <laughs> and it's just like, dude, this is so weird. Complete accident. This is 2013. It's like Nolan with the Batman sign in, in, in his movie. It's just this weird coincidence where he's in a Batman movie playing the Riddler and they bring up Batman and riddles in this movie. It's great. to the character it's of Alex so, Jones. It's so fun. And then let's let's move on to Holly, who ends up spoilers. He, she is the the kidnapper and killer of children. And so Holly and her husband, their their son, I think it was six or seven, died of cancer. This is like thirty years ago. And after the death of their son, these two were very devout Catholics. And after the death of their son, they decided to wage a war against God by taking children from parents, which would lead the parents to becoming like demons. This destroying the humanity and the faith of these parents. And so they wanted to destroy other people be- the way that they were destroyed. And so for, for a while, these two were kidnapping and, sh- and killing children. And then her husband mysteriously disappeared. She doesn't know what happened to him decades ago. And then we learned that Alex was actually the first kid that they kidnapped. And I think that the reason why they didn't kill Alex was because he was the first one. So maybe they weren't at the killings phase yet of killing kids. They weren't ready to do they it. They weren't ready to do that. So I think that's why they ended, she ended up adopting him. There's a few Easter eggs in this film of clues that lead us to understanding that Holly is the killer by when she talks about the snakes. And then also, there's a scene when Loki goes to talk to her when Alex goes missing. And they go into Alex's room and he finds the small toy RV car in Alex's drawer. And then there's this amazing shot Villeneuve sets up where Holly's out of focus in the background behind Loki and Loki's facing us and he he takes the toy RV car and he pushes it. It stops right where Holly's standing in the background. It's literally the filmmaker saying Holly did it. Yeah, there are multiple metaphors like that. So that's one of them. And then like you said, when when Detective Loki first goes to her house, he has a flashlight and he's looking inside the Trans Am. So he's right there at the solution. He's at the solution to the problem. The kids are literally inches from him below his feet. And it's just impossible for him to know that. Yeah. It's a terrifying movie because we've all like babysat nieces or nephews, little brothers and sisters. We've all like done that. And you have those moments where like, where's, where's the kid? Where's, where is she? Where's, where's she been? Is she hiding? Or like when you're a kid and you're hiding from your mother at the supermarket or at like at a mall and she can't find you and she panics and it always is nothing. The kid's always just Mm -hmm. hiding or, or you didn't notice where they were inside the room. So there's always like that. 10 second 30 second moment of terror that you can't find your kid but but Denis does an amazing job bringing such a realistic point of view from like what happens when kids actually go missing and you're running around the neighborhood you're asking everyone in the house where they were when was the last time they saw them and it, it seems so real and heartbreaking and it's almost really hard to watch when the kids finally go missing yeah and they realize they're gone and they don't know what to do it's ter- it's terrifying and actually I kind of relate to Keller in a lot of ways in this movie because I don't condemn him at all for what he does to Alex because what ends up happening is because he thinks he feels as though he knows for certain that Alex is the kidnapper because when he confronted Alex in the parking lot, Alex whispered to him, they only cried when I left them. And so this convinces 
Keller to believe that he is the actual culprit, which leads him to kidnapping Alex and then over several days torturing Alex, trying to get the information out of him. And it, he's brutal and horrible to Alex, but I also like, if I was in a situation like that, I'm, I'm not sure if I would act much differently. You know what I mean? If my daughter was kidnapped and I know for certain that this person was responsible, what would I do to that, to that person to find my daughter? People turning on each other. Yeah. You know, he kidnaps him, and then there's that very intense scene with the hammer inside yeah. the bathroom. And so he corrupts Franklin into the involved kidnapping and interrogation and torturing, and then Franklin incorporates his wife, Nancy, into the interrogation and kidnapping. And Nancy even goes to visit Alex Jones to to talk to him. And you think that, like, oh, there's no way that Nancy's going to not let him go and try to help him. And even Alex is begging. He's saying, help me, help me. But then Nancy goes into an interrogation of Alex, and he's tr- and she's trying to get information out of him, and she's not going to let him go, and she's going to put up with this. And she eventually is okay with Keller doing what he's doing and then tells her husband that we don't know about it anymore. Let's just let him do what he has to do. And so Holly actually becomes successful in corrupting these people. And one of the one of the scenes, like you mentioned earlier, one of the most intense scenes is the hammer scene where where Keller grabs a hammer and he uses it to threaten Alex. And he didn't break anything before in any of the other takes, but for the last take, Villeneuve asked Hugh Jackman to get just become as aggressive as possible for the scene. And so during the scene, Keller absolutely freaks out and he starts bashing the hammer on the sink and ends up breaking the porcelain sink. And then he slams the hammer into the drywall right next to Paul Dano's head. And that was not planned. That was improvised. And then you can just see Paul Dano just collapses. He can't even stand up anymore from fear. And you can tell that was probably real. You know what I mean? Because he wasn't expecting that to happen. And it was a, it's a brilliant take and an amazing moment in the movie. When you watch this movie, it's important to pay attention to all the details. And Loki even tells us, because when he's with Keller in one scene, he asks Keller why he didn't tell him something. And Keller's, About the building. Yeah. Keller said, I, I didn't think it mattered. And then Loki says, everything matters. And he's telling the audience, everything matters in this movie. You have to pay attention to everything, which becomes true. Because as we see, it's a very complex story. And all of these storylines are connected. You know what I mean? Especially even the body at the bottom of the church. Yeah. So Loki is going to check on local sex offenders to see if he can get a lead. And he finds that old corpse at the basement of the church. And wearing he's wearing a necklace... And it's got this odd maze-like pendant on it. And it happens pretty early on, but then later on... We don't think anything of the of the icon. Yeah, you don't think anything much of the body. You don't start to know they're related until the priest starts to talk and talk about what's going on, talking about how there's a family of people who are doing all these killings along with the, the person that was in the basement. And then if you, if you kind of notice that necklace... When he finds the the guy, Bob he, Taylor. Yeah, when he finds Taylor, who he chased from the candlelight vigil, which is a great scene. Mm-hmm. Um, he finds his house, and on the walls of all the rooms inside his house are these maze-like drawings, which obviously means that this is connected somehow. And that's where he finds all those bins full of snakes and also blood-covered clothing, which Loki uses with Keller to identify and if any of the clothing is his daughter Anna's, which he recognizes a sock, which Taylor recently stole from their her bedroom. Yeah, so we learn, we learn that Bob Taylor's story is actually a critical storyline within this film because we learn that Bob Taylor, when he was a kid, was abducted by Holly and, and her husband, but um, he actually escaped after several weeks. He was drugged up, so he doesn't remember who his captors were, but for the rest of his life, he was so mentally disturbed by, by the... By the kidnapping that he turned into this person who wanted to replicate the kidnapping of the children. He wanted to replicate what he thought he who he thought this person was that kidnapped him. And so what Bob Taylor does is when the kids are kid after the kids are missing, he sneaks into the, into their homes, steals their clothing, and covers them with pig blood to make it seem as though he he's living this fantastical imaginary life as the the abductor. And so this is why when Keller and Franklin and Nancy go to identify the clothing, it is actually their kid's clothing, but it's actually just covered in pig's blood, which we find out later. And so we find out that he's obsessed with these mazes because Holly and her husband 
were obsessed with the mazes and he has that maze pendant because he the way that they taunt the children to escape is if you can complete all these mazes you can leave yeah and uh that's one of the ways that the girl joy escapes is they're not paying attention and she has that maze book next to her and they both just try to run to escape and that's how joy escapes but anna still still gets captured and stays with her yeah and so this is why bob taylor actually makes that maze book which we think and loki thinks is important to the story, but it ends up not being important at all. And Joy escapes, but not Anna. And Joy's in the hospital, and they all go to see her. And, and you can't help but feel horrible for Keller and his wife, Grace, because their daughter hasn't been found. You can see that look on their face where the other parents are so relieved, and Joy's asleep, but she's alive, and she's there. But still, but still Keller still has that crazed look in his eyes, and he's trying to be polite, and he's trying to get information out of Joy and she says that online, you were there. She saw him there, and even though, but she was drugged up, so she doesn't really clearly remember it. And that's when Keller realizes there's something with um, Alex Jones's uh, aunt's house because that's really the only place he's been besides torturing Alex Jones. Yeah, so he realizes if she, if if Joy saw him at the house, it has to be Holly's house because he was there recently. And so he decides. So then he finally understands. Holly is the one who's the abductor, and then he books it out of the hospital. And Loki, under, Loki knows Loki knows that that Keller abducted Alex, and so he chases after him. And what happens is Keller escapes, but and then he goes to Holly's house. But Loki thinks he's going to his apartment building, which he owns, and he finds he finds out that Keller's not there. But then he finds Alex, and they they rescue Alex from the torture cell, and then which leads to. Keller's confrontation with Holly, which is one of the best scenes. Crazy, because he obviously this woman does not fit the bill of a killer or a kidnapper of children because she's just this innocent old lady. She's frail. Who, what she, could she ever do? She would never harm a fly. And then when Keller's in the kitchen and he's pulling out his tools and he's telling her that like he doesn't want to have to hurt you, but he, he will. And then he turns around, but the way she opens the door with the the towel on her hand, and she's like, "Oh, I, I burnt my hand, so I I'm feeling a little off today." Obviously, she's got a gun under there. Yeah. And then uh, she pulls the gun on him, and then you finally realize it's her. It's been her this whole time. And then she makes him drink the the concoction that drugs him out. That scene where he's just drinking this. Oh my God! It's such a powerful scene. And and she, there's even this improvised moment where, he, where Hugh Jackman drinks some, and then she goes, "Drink some more." Because he's a big guy. Yeah. And she actually improvised that line. And you can tell that she's done this so many times that she knows on the spot how much he has to drink. Yeah, exactly. And it's so smart and in such a smart way to subdue your victims and to get them to bend at your will and to do be what compliant. You want because he does everything that she says after that because he doesn't even know what's going on. He's feeling so sick to the stomach, his stomach, he almost pukes. And he kind of walks outside and they, he doesn't really know where he is. But he's still, he's still half there. It's just a terrifying scene. And then she reveals to him that. Yes, Alex took the girls, but he took them because he just wanted to play with them. But then when she when Alex brought the girls to his to Holly's house, Holly's the one who said, We're gonna leave them here. They should stay. Yeah. I was the one who said they should stay. Yeah. And so then, we learned that yes, Alex took them, but he didn't technically kidnap them. He's cause he's a kid in in his head. He just wanted to hang out with other kids. And then the metaphor of the toy RV being pushed by Loki's hand comes to fruition, and Keller is forced to back the Trans Am up and put inside that pit, which is awful. Mm. Awful to imagine how many kids have been put down there, how many people have been put down there. And, he, and she shoots him in the leg, too, yeah. so he's going to bleed out in a few days. But he, but he might last 24 hours, she says. Yeah, if, she ma- if he makes the tourniquet. If you make a tourniquet, he might last 24 hours. And she hours. says that disturbing line where she says... I would love it if you were still alive when I dumped your daughter's corpse down here tomorrow. Which also means that she's still alive. Yeah. So it sounds like like Anna's still alive and there's still hope to get her yet. yet. And now comes Loki to the freaking rescue. For no reason. It's just a simple thing where his captain wants him to give the information that Alex is safe to Holly. And And he doesn't even want to go. He's very reluctant. Yeah. It's just a minute after she puts him in the pit... He comes and shows up. Loki shows up at Holly's house, and then Holly Holly thinks that her, the jig is up because after she capacitates Keller and puts him in the pit, she goes and opens his toolkit and finds a handgun in there. And so this gives her the reason to believe that if Keller was onto me, then obviously the cops have to be onto me. So that's why when Loki shows up, she thinks the jig is up. Gotcha. That's very observant. And then... <laughs> 
and Loki coming to Holly's house, this is where the connection of the corpse in the bottom of the church finally comes into fruition, where he's, he enters the house and no one seems to be home, and he's kind of confused because he sees the car on the driveway and there are lights on, and he goes inside of a room and he, he finds a, a portrait of a man who, from like, it looks like it's from like the 80s, the photo, and he's wearing the same exact necklace of the corpse. And also, it's the same necklace that he saw that was the map that Taylor drew before he killed himself. So the, the the medallion on the necklace is the exact same thing, which in his mind is like, this is obviously the house, this is the place. And that's when he finally pulls his gun out, realizing that Holly's behind everything because mm-hmm. the corpse in the basement of the church is her husband, tying it all together. And that's when Loki finds her drugging and trying to overdose the girl with some sort of medication in a syringe. And he takes her out because she obviously, like you said, knows that the jig must be up. So I'm going to yeah. go out blazing. I'm going to kill the kid and I'm going to ha- kill myself. With and, this then, cop. and then Loki gets shot in the face while he shoots her. And he's got this horrible wound on his head. And then it's just this amazingly emotional scene of him trying to drive her to the hospital. But he can't see. His vision's blurry. He's going in and out of consciousness. It's snowing. Almost. The roads are wet. He can't see out the windshield. It's just blurry lights everywhere. He's cruising. He doesn't have a siren. He just has a light. It's such a suspenseful scene. And every time I watch it, my blood pressure just rises. And Anna's overdosing in the back seat. She's ha- going She's into foaming at the mouth. Yeah. And so it's terrifying. But he eventually makes it to the hospital. And, and she ends up being okay. And it's just like... What a relief that Anne is alive. But now you're so worried about Keller in the pit. So what happened was Loki gets Anne to the hospital. And then a few day, a couple of days later, everyone's okay. And they have a nice little scene where they say thank you to him. But then also, everyone thinks that Keller ran off. People think that Keller felt the suspicion of the police and, and took off and got out of Dodge. But what they don't understand is that he's actually sitting in that pit bleeding out and who knows if he's even still alive and this is where finally for me keller's motto of hope for the best prepare for the worst comes to his benefit because loki is just kind of just like trying to figure out what happened to keller and he's at the the house while the the forensics teams are digging up bodies and and everything and trying to find corpses of of dead children even hopefully find keller's corpse and this is when we eventually he's looking around the house by himself and he hears the chirping of the whistle and he's like what is that? Nothing. It must be nothing. And then you hear the whistle again. And then he's like, oh, well, it's just probably nothing again. And then he hears the whistle two more times. And then he just looks right to the spot where Keller's buried. And you know Loki's going to find it. Yeah. And again, this is where Keller's finally being preparedness and worst possibilities probably comes to to light where he can actually use his ability. For me, maybe somehow he figures some way to survive in the bottom of the pit. Maybe he he's really good at... at Tying knots or something to yeah, stop the bleeding. He built a good tourniquet. Probably maybe yeah. he figured out a way to stop the bleeding of his leg or got the or pulled the bullet out somehow. Yeah, and so his ability to survive is what lets him be found. Mm. And also the uh, planting of that whistle from the children earlier on who had the whistle because they were, that's they were looking they were playing with the whistle outdoors. There's a great irony because the reason why the girls went missing in the first place was they wanted to find the whistle, and then the whistle is what saves Hugh Jackman. Exactly. <laughs> And then a lot of people are like, oh, is he going to find him? Is he not going to find him? Obviously, he's going to find them. They just, the filmmakers just leave it up to us to imagine it. Yeah, you don't have to show everything. And you know what? Maybe in your mind, he doesn't find them. Yeah. But I like to think that obviously he's going to find him because Loki's a wicked smart guy. Yeah, I definitely think he finds him. And I think it's a great ending. And obviously, Keller's going to face consequences for what he did. But also, you can't blame him for what he did. He did whatever he had to do to find his daughter. I'm sure he'll accept those consequences and would have done everything all over again the yeah. same exact way. And also, I don't want to see all that. You know what I mean? I think it was a great ending, and it was such a powerful moment. And when it cut to black, I get goosebumps every time. Yeah, you don't have to show everything in a movie. Yeah. Same thing with dialogue. You don't have to constantly tell the audience everything. Yeah. Let them figure it out on their own. There's smart people watching the movies. Obviously, there's some dumbass people watching movies out there, but <laughs> most people are pretty intelligent watching movies. Yeah. But I think this movie is so well made, so well acted. It's an incredible story. It's an exhausting film to watch. It's by two, the end, it's two of and a half hours long. By the end of this movie, you are emotionally drained. You have been on edge. Your heart rate's probably like one twenty the entire time. Mm-hmm. It's it's intense as hell. And it's kind of like a Nolan movie where it's better on the second. It's it's great on the second viewing when you understand you so, you're understanding the story because it's it's a little confusing the first time around. 
But if you pay attention, but if you watch it a second time, you're rewarded by understanding where all these clues and Easter eggs were sprinkled throughout the entire film. And you still look at it differently every time because Denis put so much into his films. Again, attention to detail with the metaphors, with the sets, with the symbology. The metaphors are all over the place. I think we're done, right? I think we're done. Yeah, so that's Prisoners versus Gone Girl. If you had to watch one of these movies, what would you watch? I think Prisoners is better. Well, I, hold on, I don't want to say it's better. I, I, I love Prisoners, and I would watch this one. I would pick Gone Girl because, again, Prisoners is an emotionally draining <laughs> fucking movie, and like you feel like you've had the loss of a child when you watch it, or like <laughs> went through a divorce. It's insane. It's intense. No, not saying that's a, not a phenomenal movie, but I think I, I love Gone Girl. I really, really like that movie a lot, so I would pick Gone Girl over Prisoners. Mm-hmm. Both amazing movies, though. Yeah. You can't go wrong. Yeah, they both tell... A similar story in different ways. Prisoners don't watch on a date night. Gone Girl, you can watch on a date night. That's actually a good point. <laughs> Prisoners watch alone. <laughs> watch alone. <laughs> All right, that's it on episode 20. Gone Girl versus Prisoners. David Fincher versus Denis Villeneuve. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. As always, hit the subscribe button on YouTube, Raise the Lost Podcast, on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Help support us. Share us with your movie friends. We know you got some weird movie friends like we do. Uh, and definitely check out our Patreon if you want to help become monthly su- supporters of our content. Go check it out. We have some t- tier levels of support ranging from $1 to $5 to $10 a month. So check that out. We love you guys. Appreciate all the fanship. Again, Jai... Thank you so much for this slate that I almost just knocked over. (laughs) Amazing slate. Thanks, Jai. You're the man. Have a great week, everybody.